welcome to Kohler Mania. Thank you for joining us today. We are excited as we get back into the book of Revelation. I'm so excited about that. So much depthness in this book. Excited to learn more, especially with my husband. I am Tanya. And I'm Michael. And we are going to go ahead and jump in. So let's go ahead and get started with verse 7. Verse 7. Yes, we've gotten through six verses so yeah. far. And that's that's one thing I can't get over with this book and John. It's just how awesome he is at saying so much with an economy of words. I mean, it's just a brilliant summary and introduction to this whole book. And then I recently went through grad school, and one of the biggest emphasis that they put on writing was to make sure you say a whole lot with very few words. And I always struggled with that because I always ended up saying a whole lot with a whole <laughs> lot of words. And professors were always getting on me that you got to be more concise. And it's like, how do you do that? Well, how you do that is Revelation 1. This is just brilliant. They should have just pointed this out and say, do what John did here in the book of Revelation. Look how much he says in very few words. So you just look over, oh, we'll get through chapter one in no time. And then you start through this and you're like, oh my goodness, he said so much you could spend a lifetime just studying the theology in chapter one. This is amazing how much he says in very few words. And we already see it has a prologue that tells us exactly what this whole book is about. It's a revelation by Jesus revealing more about himself that God, the Trinity, gave to him to show to his servants. We are all servants. Doulas is the word in, in Greek, literally slaves. We are willingly putting ourselves as slaves. I would just show me your will. I want to do your will. Just show me your commands. And we are his servants. What must soon take place in the future and he made it known by sending his angel in pure apocalyptic fashion. This apocalyptic prophecy goes through a lot of angels or a lot of angelic beings to his servant, Dulas, John, who testified to everything he saw from Jesus and heard from Jesus and blessed is everyone who reads and hears what's in this book. And then he starts the letter saying, John, you know, right who it's from to the seven churches, who it's to. He's writing back home to the seven churches in the province of Asia, and he gives a wonderful greeting of grace and peace from either the Trinity or from Jesus and the seven angels, and gives a shout out to Jesus, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins and made us to be kingdom and priests to serve God the Father, to him be the glory and power. Amen. And then all of a sudden we're back here where on verse 7 where we finished, and we have, look, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. And then we have this quote, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is like a, this is a doxology is what it sounds like. It's what it sounds like to me. A doxology is a liturgical formula of praise. You used to have a lot of doxologies in your liturgical churches a lot. And I grew up in a liturgical church and this just jumps out at me as a liturgy of, of Jesus coming in the clouds. But what seems odd is we had a prologue. Then we had this letter and then we're going to continue what seems like a regular normal letter all the way through three chapters. But here, stuck right here in the middle, is this doxology about Jesus coming in the clouds, which doesn't happen until chapter 22, the end of the end times, 
Why is this here? It almost seems out of place at first blush, doesn't it? Where we have this, and it, it jumps out of us out of place because he's like, look, like it all of a sudden just happened. Behold, Jesus is coming in the clouds. But that didn't happen until chapter two. Why is this here? You have any thoughts on that? Right, <laughs> Put you right on the spot. We're in the middle of our own little Bible study here. Uh, Everybody else gets the privilege of listening. To yeah, this. and they get to laugh at me too. <laughs> um, I get the privilege of studying this. Yeah. Beforehand and know what questions I'm yeah. going to ask. But so as I've studied this book, I feel like there's the timelines are all over the place. There's different things, just it's not in chronological order. And, you know, why did he put this here? I don't know. Because John is John. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It seems like he's given us a heads up of, hey, believers, Jesus is coming. He's coming. In the clouds. So, you know, you always hear the, the believers like, hey, make sure you look up in the sky because Jesus is coming from the clouds. And then you're looking and you're looking. Okay. You've been looking for years. But yeah, I I would love to hear your perspective on this. Mm-hmm. Well, does, does this <laughs> remind you of any prophecy in particular? Does this kind of point your gaze and eyes to someplace else in the Bible? Yeah, the-, the book of Daniel, because Daniel talks about this. And you got the prophetic, the prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, I think Isaiah, maybe, Joel. There's a lot of different prophets that have that end time perspective. And I know Daniel has a lot to say about this particular thing. Yes. And I think that is an important thing to point out in regards to this prophecy and revelation is there is a lot of reference to other prophecies in the Bible. And I think John through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, is letting us know that this is not just some revelation out in some left corner on its own that is completely new. This is part of a whole body of revelation for that's been going on for several thousand years now, a body of revel- revelation that's been, been building through all those prophets that you talked about, Ezekiel and Daniel especially, and all the major and minor prophets who talked about the end times. And John refers to those a lot and and points our gaze towards that to kind of remind us that his revelation is not out in left field somewhere. This is all part of that body of revelation that he is building upon a little bit, maybe magnifying and exemplifying and getting more revelation on those prophecies, but it's not something new and completely out of left field. And right here, he is pointing us to Daniel. When you see that look, he is coming with the clouds. You've got everybody that knows the prophecies would know, oh, wow, he is referencing Daniel 7 when it says, In my vision I looked, and before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All the peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is a prophecy of the Messiah, the Son of Man, it was this man and godlike figure that approached the ancient of days and he's and John is already at the very beginning here pointing us to this revelation of Daniel and why is he 
doing that. There are several reasons that the scholars look at why this could be here when this happens at the end of the end times. First of all, it's more than likely an what they call an inclusio. The writers of the Bible, and, the, and this was a common custom in Hebrew writing, but especially in the writings of the Bible, they love to kind of start, end where they started. And so what you see is coming back full circle in their writings. And so they liked to have them start where they ended. You see, you would see this in a, what they called a chiastic structure, where you had the bookends at the beginning and the end, and then the next level bookends, and which would bullseye the center. So you had kind of this A, B, C, B, A kind of structure. Those were more involved with the chiastic structure, but a lot of books, at the very least, would just have the bookends where it would it would end the same way it started, and so you would in order to kind of show that it was a complete work and a unified work. And so we see Revelation beginning with Jesus coming in the clouds, that blessed is the one who reads it, and, and a statement that says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And you see these very same things happening at the end of the book, Jesus coming and a blessing for those who read, and Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. So we see the same thing at the end happening at the beginning in order to have this inclusio where the the the, the end ends where it it started. It's also the first prophecy of the whole book. So we have this foreshadow of the fact that yes, we're about to get into the seven letters to seven churches that are very real churches at the time, but there's also a prophecy of the end times. Let me give you a foreshadow of that. And Jesus gets a grand entrance right here at the beginning, like he did at Daniel. In the prophecy of Daniel, you have the Son of Man, Jesus, making this grand entrance before the throne of the Ancient of Days. And John is giving Jesus this grand entrance at the beginning of his letter that Jesus is coming in the clouds. And it happens suddenly. Look, Right in the middle, in the middle of the action of his, what he's giving in the introduction, you have John just saying, look, he's coming in the cloud. So we already get a sense of this suddenness of the end times where Jesus can come as a thief in the night at any moment. And he's giving that feel already at the beginning of his letter. So it's for all those reasons, I think that's why he for literary style, is a brilliant literary style, to put this shout-out to Jesus and this doxology right here uh, in the middle of this letter. Then there's a quote here that says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Who, who is this quote from? That is a question for you. <laughs> the only person here in the room in this Bible study that can answer. So that would be Jesus. How do we know that it's Jesus? Because the Lord God said so. Says from the Lord God, yes. And from the, <laughs> from who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, here's the reason for the question. And my Bible, this is written in red, which you can disagree with whether it should be in red or not, because it wasn't originally written in red. This is scholars who have determined that this should be in red, saying that Jesus is speaking this. But there's some scholars that don't believe this is the, the person of Jesus, but perhaps maybe the person of the Father, because it is using language that sounds like the Father, that 
saying that I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, Mm -hmm. who was and who is and who is to come, that's Yahweh. We talked about that in the recent podcast, that who is and who was and who is to come is Yahweh. That word that could mean is one form of the to be verb in Hebrew, and it could mean who I am, I was, I will be. It's possible it could mean all three, and therefore it is a title here that is standing for Yahweh, who was, who is, and who is to come the Almighty, Almighty God Himself. So these are words that are very strongly in favor of being from Yahweh Himself. So how is this from Jesus? Because if we look at verse 7, Behold, He is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. So who was pierced? Jesus. So I would say with confidence that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. We know that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are one. But in this instance, I would say it's Jesus saying that because the Lord God, his Father, said so. Yeah, and you know, I think that's why most scholars, that's why it's in red here. It, it's kind of a minority view that, that kind of haggle with this maybe being the person of the Father versus Jesus. But And for the very reason, like you're just stating— we just introduced Jesus in this grand entrance, and there's no indication that we're changing the person who's speaking. And it says it's from the Lord God, which is possible that could be from the Father, but from the time of this writing, Lord became a title for Jesus himself. So everybody would have understood at the time that this was from the Lord who is Jesus, the Lord, the member of that person of the Godhead saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And so just that in and of itself would say that. Plus, if you include this as an inclusio, then we know that in, in chapter 22, verse 13, we know that Jesus said almost the exact words Back then, back in chapter 22, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, and I am the first and the last, which is a version of that. So if you include this as an inclusio, then we know for sure Jesus is speaking in chapter 22, and therefore he is also saying that here. So for, for all those reasons, and the only, it seems like Jesus is saying this, and the only reason I bring it up is, is that there are some that haggle that this is God the Father. But what I think what is confusing is the fact that it is so strongly words from God the Father. This is quintessential John with his high Christology. We talked about in another uh, podcast that he is just, one of his emphasis in the gospel of John was to emphasize not just how Jesus is, is man, but really emphasizing how much Jesus is God himself, Yahweh himself, the great I am. And so in perfect John, quintessential John fashion, he is using Jesus. Jesus is using words that normally we would think of coming from the Father because he is on par with the Father. He is Yahweh himself as part of the co-equal Trinity. And so this is perfect quintessential John fashion. I I do want to go back really quickly in verse 7, which I know we didn't have a chance to talk about it, but I love that it says 
He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on the account of him. Even so, amen. But what is so amazing is that those who nailed him to the cross will see like everyone that has nailed him to the cross. If we have not accepted Jesus, it's almost like you are participating in nailing him to the cross. But the fact that there is the piercing, the scars, as he comes down from heaven, those scars are there. There's no denying the fact that that is Jesus Christ. The scars are there. It's kind of like what reminds me of Thomas when Thomas is like, ah, I don't know. I need to see, I need to see your hands, Lord. Let me see. And so he actually shows it to him and he says, blessed are those who have not seen, but yet believe. And so I just, I just think it's a pretty amazing thing because every Resurrection Sunday, my daughter, we all, well, we all end up doing it. So we all end up putting little marks on our hands, just a reminder of the piercing of the scars that Jesus has has taken for us. And I just think that that's pretty interesting that John puts that emphasis in there of who pierced him. I think that's pretty neat. Yeah. And there's always been a lot of discussion about who that is. And it can be even a controversial discussion. Was it the Jewish people that are responsible for Jesus dying on the cross? Is it is it the Romans who sentenced him? Is it just the religious leaders that are responsible for putting Jesus on the cross? Or I like how you pointed out, everyone who has sinned is responsible yes. for putting Jesus on the cross. That's the yes. whole reason why he died, uh, is because we all sin, and we all needed to be saved from our sins. And so we are all responsible for that. But how how can every eye see him? You know, we're on a circular globe, for one thing. So how will every eye see Jesus when he comes, including those who have pierced him? I mean, this makes it sound like we're talking, especially if you if you if this is referring to those who literally the religious leaders and the Romans who specifically ordered that Jesus be killed, if it's referring to them, how will they see them, much less every every eye will see him on a circular globe? There's been a lot of discussion on how that might happen. Any thoughts? So I believe that in our human sense, it's kind of hard to comprehend this specifically, but you know, you kind of think of everybody can look up to the sky uh, as it says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see. I would think that he would be coming from the clouds, from the heavens down to the earth. So it would be very obvious for all of us, even though it's not that I can specifically tell you how it will happen, but it's almost like God is allowing every single eye on this planet to see and recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yeah. Just like it says, every knee shall bow that right. he is God. And there's there's no reason why he can't circle circle the whole circular yeah. globe. And so 
every eye will see him that way. I've, I've heard some interesting explanations of the fact that we are now in the TV age, so he could also be on TV. What in the world is that flying in the <laughs> sky coming in the clouds? And you're going to have cameras pointed at him. So you got you got that advantage of, of the current technology being able to see him. Plus, all those in the spiritual realm, we, sometimes we think two-dimensionally, and what's good about Revelation is the book of Revelation makes us think more three-dimensionally, think about the spiritual realm, because it talks about all these spirits and stuff, and and John is getting revelation. He was in the spirit, seeing into the spiritual realm, and we got to think of seeing into the spiritual realm as well, and those in the spiritual realm will be able to see Jesus coming in the clouds as as well. And then Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. What does that mean, to be the Alpha and the Omega? I'm the beginning and the end. Like, there's nothing in our human sense that we can comprehend what is a beginning because it doesn't say in Genesis, God was born and this is what happened. Like it just happened and the end will just happen. There is no ending with him. It just happens. Alpha and Omega. He is everything that encompasses what we believe, what time is, what is what is that? What really is time? Yeah, and you know, this is what they call in grammar a merism, if I'm pronouncing that right. I've never heard anyone say it. I've only seen it in writing, but I believe that's how it's pronounced or something similar. You grammarians can can correct me if I'm wrong, but the merism where it's almost like an inclusio where somebody says, I looked high and low. Doesn't mean you just looked high and just looked low, but you also looked high, low, and everywhere in between. And so this is a way of saying that where Alpha and Omega is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So he is saying, I am the first letter of the alphabet and the last letter of the alphabet. I find it funny that they didn't translate Alpha and Omega. All this is in Greek, but they left Alpha and Omega still in the Greek. You know, they could have translated that and said, I am the, I am the A and the Z. <laughs> um, and it sounds funny to us now because we we traditionally have never seen it translated that way. And Omega isn't literally correspond to the letter Z, but in the sense that Omega is the last word of the Greek alphabet and Z is the last letter in our alphabet. If they were to translate it completely, it would be I and the A and the Z and everything in between to signify that he is complete. You know, one of the, one of the things that is common in Hebrew literature is to have an acrostic where you have a psalm or a book of the Bible, even or or other writings in the Bible that start where the each passage starts with each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and that was so they can help memorize things because they, a lot of them didn't have books and so they wanted to memorize it. But it was also to signify a sense of completeness, that this was a complete s- statement of of theology on this subject. Like Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the whole Bible and it in in the book of Psalms. And it was it's about the word of God and it was has a paragraph on every letter of the Hebrew alphabet as a way to help them memorize it, but also as a way to kind of signify this is kind of a complete intention of a complete theology on the magnificence of the Word of God. And so Jesus is picking up on that and saying, I am 
the completeness of everything. I am the A to the Z, the Alpha to the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who was to come, is to come, the Almighty, equivalent to Yahweh himself. I'm not just merely a man, but I'm also as Yahweh, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, completely all-powerful, and Jesus is making that statement. Did you have any thoughts on that? No, I think it's just absolutely beautiful. The A to the Z, that's pretty cool, and that sounds kind of funny. I don't think they would add that to the Bible, but it makes more sense to read it as Alpha and Omega, and it's just amazing because it, it reminds me of the great I am. I am Yahweh. Yes, it's a magnificent doxology, and I just love what John the writer is doing, with the little advantage of having some direction from Jesus and the Holy Spirit, to put this beautiful doxology here to give us a foreshadow of the prophecies of the end times to come and to give Jesus this grand entrance in the book or letter of Revelation right here at the beginning before continuing the letter in verse 9 of this brilliant introduction and summary of what the the whole book is about. And we'll have to pick up there in the next podcast in verse 9, moving right along very quickly. (laughs) This is hilarious. So we've got through two verses today. Where does the time go? I don't know, but it seems pretty deep because we're we're really studying the Word, and that's what we should be doing. We shouldn't gloss over it, you know, just like reading it really quickly. God has a lot to say. And if we just pay close attention to that, we can definitely see what is the message that you're telling us, Lord, and how do you want us to internalize these words to recognize how big you are and how awesome and magnificent you are with great power and how we are your children and you've given us this great gift to be able to read this, examine it, study it, pray over it, and even share it. So I just think, even though we only got through two verses, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think it still is really beautiful, and it just helps us to continue on. So, Yeah, and I I just love this, having a Bible study with you as well. I mean, this is, I think, how Bible studies should be. We should have family Bible studies. I think it's great to have a Bible study with your, your spouse and just talk these things through. And we're trying to give a taste and an example of that as well as just how these Bible studies can happen with your spouse and just talk it out. Uh, you don't have to be a, a theologian scholar that has all these PhD degrees to be able to do this. The Word of God is knowable by everybody. And and just to to talk out what, what I found and I see, and then you, my spouse, talk about what she sees, I think is just, it, it brings you closer as, as a couple, that threefold cord of oneness between us and, and unity with God. And as we draw closer to God together, we draw closer together. And I think it is just a, a beautiful thing to have this this Bible study with your spouse. And I hope uh, our listeners are edified from this as well. Yes, I believe that that is a great word, and especially doing this with you as well. I'm really thankful that the Lord has allowed this podcast to happen and allowed us to be able to study, not just with our small group, but within our home 
just as a married couple. So that's a blessing. And with that said, we will end this podcast with the two amazing verses that we got to get through today. But we will pick up next time, starting in verse nine. Super exciting. Until next time. God bless.